Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we are led by your spirit and where we're going. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 13, we're looking at the life of Abijah. Uh, he was basically a righteous king, and he was in battle with Jeroboam. He went out to battle with Jeroboam, and that's where we left him. He was lining up for battle uh, when we last last left. Was righteous king? Um, mostly. <laughs> so, chapter 13, verse 13. But Jeroboam caused an ambush to come about behind them so that they were before Judah and the ambush was behind them. And then Judah, when, when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind and they cried unto the Lord and the priests sounded the trumpet. Then the men of Judah gave a shout and as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. So I'm going to stop there because we want to come back, and I do want to remind everybody, uh, Abijah was standing up on the hill telling them that they were following a rebel, that they had abandoned God and all of this. And while he's given this big, long speech, uh, Jeroboam sends troops behind him, and all of a sudden they come to attack them. And that's where we're at at this, at this uh, juncture. And it says that Jeroboam caused an ambush to come up behind him. And when Je Judah looked, behold, the battle was behind, uh, before and behind, and they cried unto the Lord. And I love what they did. They cried unto the Lord. Because they were in a tight spot. They had an enemy, the bulk of the enemy in front of them, and a large enemy behind them. And you don't want an enemy on both sides of you when you're in a battle. It leaves you no place to retreat to, no, no, no quarter to move back to. And so here they were, set up for war, ready to go. And Jeroboam comes in with a um, treachery. <laughs> you know, he's coming on and talking to them, you know, calling to them, probably under a flag of truce type deal, not saying very nice things. <laughs> And they come around on both sides of it and, and raise the attack. And they look around and they decide, we're going to call upon the Lord. And this is a good thing because with, with uh, Rehoboam, they had not been following God. He was doing everything that was wrong and the people were not following God. His son comes into power and he's calling on God. He's reminding them of their history. And the first thing they do when they run into a trial and a tribulation is call on God. Now, the Israelites had this problem calling on God anyway. But in this case, we see this indication that they honestly meant their cry to God. It wasn't that they were uh, crying out to him because they you know, were fearful of the enemy. Well, they were fearful of the enemy, but it wasn't this. We're crying on to God, and it's unusual. Because Jeremiah... Uh, Abijah had, bring, had brought out the priest. He had offered sacrifices. He was calling on God and saying, children of Israel, you are following a rebel. You're, you're following other gods. Come back. Now, and uh, he was attacked on there. And then when the people cried out to the Lord, the priest sounded the, temp the trumpets. They, you know, this was the habit of, you know, of the Jews when they were righteous. <laughs> when they're righteous, the priest went out to battle with them and would sound the trumpets. They would, they would be the one inquired of by God. Should we go in battle? Should we, should we do this? The high priest would be there and the priest would sound the trumpets. So at this point, Abijah is following God. He's bringing the people back. And the people are responding, at least, at least outwardly. And there's this battle going on, and I love this, and it said, The men of Judah gave a shout, and the men of Judah shouted, and it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. So the recognition is that God brought the enemy down. And I think for us, this is something we need to always remember. When we feel like we're in battles with the enemy, we need to go to God and watch what God does. Doesn't mean we don't do anything. The people shouted, they were fighting, but it was God who brings the deliverance. 
And this is one of the things that I'm, you know, as I've said it several times, I get excited as I look at what's going on and the attacks on our church because Satan is trying to stop what's going forward. Our response needs to be call upon the Lord and watch what he does. I am so looking forward to what God's going to do. I'm hoping that for a great start to the revival tomorrow, uh, in two days, Saturday, when we pass out these bags and, see, and get people, and where people can get saved. And then another week, two and a half weeks when we have the revival services here. I'm expecting something big to happen for, for our church, for chloride, for God. But it all comes down to calling on God, seeking him. Because it is so easy for us to try to do things our own way. To God, I, I'm, I'm really strong. I'll, I'll manage to get this done. Yeah. And I'm a driven personality. I tend to do that more often than not. God, I think this is what we're going to do. Charge. <laughs> Sometimes forget to ask him what he wants done. Just sounds really good to me. And charge into battle and forget to ask him. Then come out of the battle bloodied and, and bruised and go, okay, God, uh, maybe I need to go to you and find out what you want done. Because this obviously wasn't the battle to fight. But in this case, they're fighting a battle that God has put in their place. And they're going to come out, and, and it says, God smote the enemy. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into his hand. So he has victory. Now, if you remember the first part of this, the, the whole things he's saying didn't really sound all that righteous. I mean, all he was doing is quoting the history of Israel to them. You're following this rebel who rebelled against his leaders, and they took you into idolatry. There's no real strong message there, but God stood up for him because he at least was bringing people's focus on God. And we talked, you know, how much grace is what's involved in all of this. Abijah is not living a strong, powerful, godly life. He's not preaching a strong, godly message here. But he has at least turned to God, and God is saying, okay, you've come a little ways, and I will take it the rest of the way. And this is the beautiful thing about God. We turn to him, and he does the work. He just wants a turn. Uh, quit doing it our way and say, God, I want what you want. And this is where Abijah is right now. He's just turning very softly, very carefully, making the turn to God and, and watching what God does. And God delivers him. Verse 17 says, And Abijah and the people slew them a great slaughter, so there fell among the slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took the cities from him, Bethel with its towns therein, Jeselam with its towns therein, Ephraim with its towns therein. Neither did Jeroboam recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him and he died. And Abijah waxed mighty and married 14 wives and begat 22 sons and 16 daughters. And the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet of Edo. So Abijah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. In his days, the land was quiet 10 years. So here we have the final parts of this battle. Jeroboam has been harassing Judah all through the reign of Rehoboam. He's come into the reign of Abijah, and Abijah goes to war with him and kills 500,000 men. That's a pretty big blow to any nation, to lose 500,000 men, and all battle age. All right, so the men in their prime of age, 500,000 of them. That meant mostly old, old men were left and young, children, young boys were, were the ones that were left out of this battle with, from him. And, he and it says he never recovered power again during his days. This was a defining moment in the battle. 
And it's going to bring peace for the rest of Abijah's days and through Asa. Asa is going to have peace from the northern kingdom. And one of the things we read in here is we read through all these kings, the northern kingdom is always harassing the southern kingdom. And sometimes the southern kingdom is harassing the northern kingdom too uh, in, in these battles. But here he's going to have some peace. And it says here in verse 19, Abijah pursued Jeroboam and he took Bethel, which is a very large, large important city. He took Ephraim and he took Jeshanah. So he's taking major cities in all the area around those. So these are areas that he's taken and all the cities in those areas. So he's, he's conquering a good chunk of the southern part of, of the northern kingdom. Because at Bethel is where uh, Jeroboam put up one of the golden, golden calves. So he's taken away where the golden calf worship has been established. He's taken away several other towns and working his way up there. And it says, Jeroboam did not recover again in Abijah's days. And the Lord struck him and he died. All right. So Jeroboam is going to die shortly thereafter. And his nation has been really harmed. And then it tells us that a little bit of interesting information. Abijah married 14 wives. <laughs> These guys liked wives, I guess. <laughs> And had 22 sons and 16 daughters. So he has a large family. And then, and then he's going on. And the rest, of the, the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his sayings are, they, are written in the story of the prophet Edo. This is another one of those books that we don't have. It's not in the Bible. And we don't have this book. And then it ends. It's so, so Abijah slept with his father's. And they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. And in his day, the land was quiet for ten years. So Asa's going to start with ten years of peace. That's pretty good because Rehoboam had no peace. <laughs> Abijah, for the first part of his reign, did not have any peace. So Asa is going to get a kingdom that is going to have a start of peace. And we're going to find, as we get into this next chapter, that Asa's a pretty good Pretty good king for the children of Israel. So on we go into Asa's story, verse two. And Asa did that which was right in the, a good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places and broke down the images and cut down the groves. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandments. He took away out of all the cities of Judah and the, the high places and the images. And the kingdom was quiet before him. So he came to power. Abijah obviously did not get rid of all the idols. He was seeking God somewhat. Asa comes in and the very first thing he does, he starts getting rid of the idols. Gets rid of the altars. And we read a lot about him in, in Kings as well. He went around all these different towns and sent his soldiers, everybody around, to destroy all the idols they could find and get rid of them. Get rid of the images, get rid of the altars. And it says he was a good king. He took the altars away from the strange gods, in other words, idols, and the high places, and he broke down images and cut down the groves. And we've talked about the groves. That's where the totems were. Astora was, was worshipped in the in the groves. So when you see this term, they cut down the groves. This is referring to the fertility goddess uh, Astora. And they would put a totem up and then they'd build a wall of trees around that to have their cover for their worship. All right. Um, and then he did something that is hard to believe. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, their God of their fathers, and to do the law and the commandments. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing that he goes, he told the people they were to worship God. Now, this tells us that at least outwardly, the people would worship God. But you can't tell somebody to worship God because their heart has to be in behind that worship. The actual worship has to come from a revival in the heart. Now, his actions would lead to somewhat of a revival. 
there were going to be a lot of people going, okay, we can worship God and we can, and it is, I guess, cool to worship God where we want to, we want to worship him so that there's not a push back against it. But by the same token, he could not force them to worship God. Now they would go, and the problem would be that most of them were going to go through the rituals. Uh, during his 10 years, they're going to go to Jerusalem and the temple. They'll offer the three sacrifices a year. They'll, they'll go to the, the synagogue. They'll make it look like they're worshiping God. Now, in that environment, a lot of people will convert because it, there's, not, there's not a problem with conversion at that time, and there will be a lot of people who do convert. But there's going to be a lot of people doing a show, doing the show. Okay, I was told I have to turn to God. Okay, I'm going to go to church every Sunday morning. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray once in a while. But their hearts aren't actually converted, aren't circumcised as we, as we see in, in another spot. But here we're seeing a move toward the right direction. Here they're being told, worship God. And most of them are in a position where they want to worship God. They're practicing probably the Passover. They're, they're telling the stories. Now they're having the stories revealed to them. They'll have the story of Abijah who won the victory that he shouldn't have won. We're going to see all of this going on. They're going to see a king leading by example. And that king's leading by example will get some people just to say, I want to convert. You know, and this is what happens. And people go, well, I can't make my kids be, you know, turn to God. And that's true. We can't make our kids turn to God. But we can put an example in front of them. We can live righteously. We can lift up God in front of them. And if you're like me and most parents, you make them go to church. I like some of the pastors, you know, you, they tell them that the, they grew up with a, with a drug problem. They were drugged to church whenever the doors were open. You know, my kids were drugged to church when, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and most of them didn't get drugged. They wanted to go, but they, there were times when they were <laughs> drugged to church. We're going to church, no, no questions asked. This is what Asa is getting ready to do. It's time to come. It's time to worship. You are going to worship. And just being around the worship, hearing the word of God, because part of their worship would have been to hear the Levites and the priests reading the word of God, going to the synagogue, having the word read, hearing the word. And the word of God does not return void. So by pushing them into these situations where they had to hear and lift up, then there would have been some revival just from that. And it is a good time for them. The people basically turn their hearts, at least outwardly, to God. And God blesses. And so this is a great time for them. He's taken away the groves. He commands them to, do the, to, to, to seek God and to do the law. And then he says, and he took away out away he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and images, and the kingdom was quiet. He's getting rid of all of the temples in the cities of Judah. He's doing a big job. Yeah. And I can almost picture this, you know, the, here come the here come the troops tearing down all the all the idols, all the all the little temples, cutting down the, the groves. And what a revival this would be. And we've seen these type of things over time. Uh, we've had, during the, during the revivals of the past, people would come in. A Billy Sunday, a Finley, a Finney, uh, the Wesley Brothers, uh, D.L. Moody, they would come into town, they'd preach. And God would move in such a way that the bars and brothels and everything just closed down, not because somebody made laws against them, but there just wasn't enough business to keep them in business. And oftentimes the owners would get saved and they would shut them down as well. You know, so we have the right movement here, and it looks good. Asa is bringing around a revival for Israel and looking at what's going to happen. Verse 6 says, And he built fenced cities in Judah, for the land had rest, and he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said unto Judah, Let us build these cities, and make about them walls and towers, gates and bars, 
while the land is yet before us, because we have sought the Lord our God, and we have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. I think this is a very telling statement. He did not sit back on his laurels and say, hey, we're at peace, let's just, you know, we're, we're going to enjoy peace. He prepared for the next activities. This is true for us. And unfortunately, too many times we go, okay, no problems. I can just kick back and relax for a while and not prepare. Not prepare our hearts. Not prepare for the next, next battle. And the one thing that we do know from history and from the Bible, there's always going to be a next battle. Another attack. There may be a short period of respite. And yes, we want to rest a little bit during that time. But we also have to get our minds set for the next battle. It's one of the reasons that I'm pushing so hard right now. Are we ready for what is coming in America? I don't know how soon it's going to come. I do believe it's going to be sooner than, sooner than later. I believe most of us will be alive for what's coming. But the persecution that's coming, are we getting our minds set? Are we filling our hearts with the word of God? Are we taking this time of relative ease and saying, I'm going to put up defenses. I'm going to put up guards around my heart. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to plan on how I'm going to answer. Asa is very smart. He says, we've got peace. Let's build up our towns. Let's put bigger walls around them. We're going we're gonna to put locks on the gates. Uh, and we're going to get ready for the war. He was not foolish enough to believe that there would be no more war. He's got the enemy in the north that, that doesn't like him. And he knows that when they get strengthened back up, they're going to probably harass the southern kingdom. He's got enemies all around him that will, are looking for weakness. And the one thing that is very interesting as we look at things in even our day and age, with everybody tell, believing the lie that people are basically good, they're all out there saying, well, all these guys that are really bad, they're, they're, they're going to be nice if we just treat them nice, because if we're nice to them, they'll be nice to us. The only problem is that people take that as weakness. If you're not strong and ready to, ready to defend yourself, then the enemy will take advantage of it. And Asa is saying, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to make it so that nobody wants to come in and attack me. I don't think he was saying, all right, we're going to go out to, to make war. He's just saying, we want to be strong so that nobody will attack. And we're seeing this all over the world as, as nations who are supposed to be the top, top in the world are showing weakness. We're having all kinds of problems going on. We've got Putin going on. We've got China saber rattling. We've got the Middle East saber rattling. All because they're looking and saying, NATO is weak. The United States is weak, and they're going, We're gonna, we, we need to take advantage of it at this moment. And this is something that needs to be careful of. Are we presenting a weak image to Satan? Now, when we are in Christ, and we are focused in him, and we're hiding in Christ, we are not weak. And he doesn't see us as weak. But what ends up happening is when people are not at battle, there's not a hard time, they kind of start taking it easy. And in the battle times, if you look at history, the time more people got hurt is when they thought that they were safe and they took off their armor and they relaxed and figured, we're not at war right now, no problem. And then they would get a bullet between the eyes or, or an arrow or whatever, depending on how far back you want to go. And they would die because they took at ease. We are in this world. We are at war spiritually in this world. We will not be at full peace until we enter heaven's gates. And we need to keep that in mind. We are in a spiritual war. Satan is looking for us to step out of the covering of Christ. No, we can't literally step out of the covering of Christ, but get out of, the, out of it a little bit so we can get beat up a little bit by him. He can't defeat us because we have God but he can beat us up real bad if we're not following God carefully in his word, worshiping, 
in, in, in church, listening to teaching, being built up by the, by the body of Christ. All of the things that go into preparing for war. And this is very important. Are we prepared? Are we prepared for what is going to come down the pike? I think very shortly we're going to be looking at the, the face of imprisonments and martyrdom in America. All right? Uh, I could be wrong. I'd like to be wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think I am because I'm looking at what's going on. I'm looking at how weak things are. I'm looking at how even our own government is turning against free speech and freedom of religion and all of these things that come along with it. And it won't be long before we get these pressures. Are we prepared for battle? Are we building up our spiritual defenses? Do we have the word of God memorized? Are we, do we know the stories? Do we know God? Have we, are we able to stand up to, to witness to it for him? And this is going to be critical. If, if we can't stand now, there is no way we'll stand when our, when our freedoms are, are at stake or our life is at stake. And I think it's, I didn't mean this to be so, <laughs> so heavy today, but this is where I'm, going, where I'm seeing from all of this. Because we need to be prepared. I don't know how fast things are going to happen, but the one thing about it, when you read the scriptures and you see how fast things turn, Daniel is on top of everything. The next thing, he's facing death because the king got mad at the other wise men and now he's facing death. Daniel goes out on a trip and, and everything is going good toward worshiping God and everything. The next thing you know, Nebuchadnezzar is building an idol and saying, worship it or die. And we see this all through the scriptures. Suddenly things happen. And we think, oh, everything's going along smooth. You know, we're, we're looking good. There's no problems. And we let down our guard. And that is when we're going to be in trouble. You know, and you can even look at something like Noah. Now, Noah was given a 120-year warning. He was, he was told that the days of man are 120 years. But even when the flood started, he's building, he's building, he's preaching, he's preaching. People are getting married. People are going to dinners. People are having babies and all the stuff that goes along with normal life. And God says, get in the boat. And he closes the door. And the next thing you know, he starts his over-a-year journey floating on his floating zoo with nobody else alive. Open to other people too? The ark? I believe anybody who had responded would have been able to go into the ark. Why build a boat? Why build a boat that had, you know could hold all the all the animals, all the food, and then a lot more people? It was an open invitation. He he, according to Hebrews, he preached to the people, and people didn't listen. See, that's what I think is so sad is that all those years that he preached, nobody believed him. No, no response whatsoever. All they looked is, and they had a big, big picture there. Here's this great big boat. 120 years of watching this guy build a boat. So that means all the people didn't believe in God, huh? Well, that's, they did what was right in their own sight. So yeah, they were doing what was right in their own sight. They rejected God. They were following after, after their own ways, doing what they thought was right. When we get to the rapture, it's going to be the same thing. Everybody is going to be doing what they want, and the tribulation will start, and everybody will be getting married, having babies, starting jobs, starting businesses, and all of a sudden, everything will change. Mm -hmm. So the whole reason I'm thinking of bringing this out is it's an all of a sudden. God moves, and all of a sudden, drastic things happen. Uh, The children of Israel, all through the book of Judges, disobey, 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 all of a sudden, get attacked. And God has given the warning over and over and over again, and then... Yeah, and I like it. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, everything changes, and we need to be ready for the all of a sudden's in our life, because God is letting Satan do more than we want him to do. I really wish God would tell Satan no a lot more than he does, <laughs> but he allows Satan a lot of leeway to challenge us, to give us a hard time. <laughs> we do know that he's chained. We do know that he has to ask for permission. And I agree. It would be nice. God, could you just shorten that chain a little bit? Could you say no a little more often? But, you know, in the essence of all of this, 
when we are suffering, we usually turn to God and follow him a lot closer than we do when nothing seems to be going wrong. Because when nothing's going wrong, we kind of get relaxed. We kind of forget about God. Not everybody, you know, not all the time, but I know in my case, when everything's going right, I tend to relax and say, okay, wow, that's wonderful. And then I get broadsided and, okay, God, uh, um, you got my attention. <laughs> I think God allows Satan to do just that. Really give us a challenge because he wants us to turn to him and say, God, I'm looking up. Uh, I was listening to one of the pastors today, and he goes, he goes, it's really hard when you have a major, major issue and, and you're in the hospital, and the only way you can do is look up. <laughs> and I don't remember who it was. It is a test for our faith. Is my faith truly real? It's a test to see if we're going to turn to him rather than away from him. And the good news is he will always give us grace sufficient to what we're going through. Always. And so if you're going through a really hard time, you can say, okay, guys, I must have a lot of grace given to me because I'm going through a lot of hard stuff. This is where we're at with all of this. Is he's saying, suddenly something's happened. So Asa's preparing for the suddenly. He's not just sitting on his laurel saying, I'm going to, God's giving me peace. You know, he's at least preparing for his son, if nothing else. God does want to toughen us up a, little, a lot of times. You know, and it doesn't always have to be physical stuff. Some people, it is going to be spiritual and emotional stuff that they get attacked with. And he's saying, here, are you looking at me? Are you turning to my word? And the hard part is when we're in the middle of all these trials, God oftentimes seems far away because he's trying to say, do you trust? And I'm thinking about this. What does it mean to trust God? A lot of people say, well, I trust God and then complain about all the bad things that seem to be happening to them. And, then, and God is probably looking down and go, I thought you trusted me. I have a good plan for you. Do you trust me? And we have a problem sometimes when we look at this and say, God, I don't understand how it's going to be good, so it can't be good. And forget that God has a different view than we do. I've kept always saying is that, you know, God promises that all things work together for good, but not necessarily my good. My things that I'm going through may put me in the path of somebody to help them, and I may never know that they were helped. I may never know that they got helped because of what I went through. And I know that is hard to understand and hard to accept. So we just want to keep in mind that even though I don't see what's good and I don't understand what's good, doesn't mean it's not, not for good. Because I may be going through trials just so that people can watch me and say, wow, they stayed faithful during all of that. If they can stay faithful, maybe I should. Maybe I should get serious. Maybe I should come to Christ. We don't know. Maybe we save somebody's life in the process without knowing it. We're just at the right time, at the right moment, because of all the hardship we're going, that somebody gets, saved, you know, gets actual, their life saved from, from experiencing something. So we don't know. And the question is, do we trust God enough to say, God, you know, you know what is best? Now, I know when we're not going through anything, we go, yeah, it's real easy to say, God, I trust you, and, I, and I'll trust you to, be, to go what's best. But when we're in the middle of the trial... It's not as easy to say, God, I trust you to be good and to know what's best. But that is when we're in that middle of that faith trial saying, you know, do you really trust me? Do you really believe in the middle of the trial when everything looks like, God, I prayed, I prayed for a great revival and nothing's, nothing's happening. You know, uh, I'm hoping for something to happen on this revival, but you know what? If nothing happens during this revival, I still know God's got a plan and that he's got a revival somewhere down the road for this church. Even if nothing happens from the revival, I know that his desire is to see people saved. Now, and he may be just saying, well, that was all you. We're not we're going to do something different. And it will be a tough thing. It will be a tough thing to, to swallow if nothing happens. But... I also understand that God has a plan. I'm going to say, God, I trust you. 
And I'm not going to say it's easy. It's going to be easy. I'm still hoping that he'll do a mighty work. Don't get me wrong. I'm hoping for a mighty work. But if it doesn't happen, then I have to sit back and say, okay, God, I still trust you. You know, I still trust you to do what you said you're going to do. And this is where we're going to be on all these things. Are we preparing our hearts and our desires for what God has in store? And it's not easy at times. And what we want to do is during times of peacefulness, get ourselves ready. That is when we get ourselves fed spiritually and beefed up spiritually so that when it's time to starve, we, we can get by. And not only did he stop there, he started to build all these preparations in verse 8. And Asa had an army of men that bore targets or shields and spears out of Judah, 300,000, and out of Benjamin that bore shields and drew bows, 280,000, all men of valor. So here he is building an army of 580,000 men to defend himself even though he's at peace. He is prepared. And they are ready to go. They have the, their, their shields, their bows, their targets, which are basically large shields. <laughs> and so here he's got this large army at the call. I'm not, I don't necessarily believe they were a standing army, always ready to go. But he was one of those things where as soon as they blew, blew the trumpets and made a military call, he had an army of, of 580,000 men available to him. And then in verse 9 it says, And there, and there came out against them Zephar, uh, Zerath, the Ethiopian, with a host of 1,000,000 and 300 chariots, and came unto Merishah. 1,000,000. Now, that's a million-man army to go against his 580-man army. And on top of that, he's got 300 chariots. And we've talked about this. Chariots in that day and age were equivalent to tanks. So he's coming in with a huge army, a large group of people. And in verse 10, it says, And Asa went out against him, and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephath, at Mariseth, and Asa cried unto the Lord his God. Asa followed God. And you got to picture this. He's outnumbered basically two to one. That's a pretty big army. And I can't even imagine looking out at a million-man army. You know, get up there in the valley, and everywhere you look on that valley is the enemy. Everywhere. That would be a horrendous thing to be looking at. Now, this would never happen in our day and age of machine guns and everything because nobody's going to line up with that <laughs> to, to be mowed down like that. But in that day, you had spears, you had swords. They have 300, 300 chariots to come racing in against the line. And you're looking out, and everywhere you look is the enemy. Have you ever had a time in your life where it looked like enemies were everywhere. And the question is, what do we do when it looks like the enemy is out there? And here he is at peace, and suddenly he ends up with an army coming out against him. A huge army coming out against him. And it says, his response, he called on the Lord. Asa is quite a character. He is, he is really following God. He is encouraging his people to follow God. And it says he calls on him, and here's what he says to the Lord is God. Lord, it is nothing with you to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you, and in your name do we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. I love this prayer. God, it doesn't matter whether we have a lot or a little. They have a lot or a little. You are the one that will bring victory. This is faith. This is a faith statement. He, and he goes, we're going to go out. We're going out, God. We're, we're going to battle because you're on our side. You're, we are looking for what you are going to do. 
And again, he's not sitting back saying, okay, God, I'm just going to wait for you to do this. And this is the problem a lot of people do. And we have to have this balance between trusting God and doing things on our own. And we have to go out and do things, but not trying to depend on what I do. Because it's all up to God. Asa's saying, God, you know, they got us two to one, but on, when you're on our side, we can be victorious, and we're going to go take that, we're going to attack these people, and we're waiting to see what you are going to do. This is a wonderful prayer. This is a prayer of faith. That he's saying, you know, you can help those whether there's a lot, whether there's no power. I love that, no power. <laughs> he's got, he's got 580,000 men on, on his side, so he has, he has some power. But he says, hey, you know, compared to that million out there, we're nothing. We're nothing. And he says, you can deliver. You, your name, we go against this multitude. You are our God, and let no man prevail against, note what he said, not us, against you. This is reminiscent of what David said when he went up against Goliath. If you remember the story of David and, David and Goliath, he came out, he's visiting his brothers, he's bringing food to his brothers. Goliath stands up, and what does Goliath say? He attacks God and Israel. And David's looking around and saying, why are we letting this heathen speak against our God? Let God arise and take care of him. And his brothers are saying, no, be quiet, shut up. You know, you, you, know, you came out just to see the battle. We know, we know you. And then Saul hears the words, gets the words rehearsed to him. And I have never understood why Saul would send a teenage boy with no armor out to fight the giant. <laughs> you know, it had to have been God touching his heart for all of that. Because, you know, the loser of this war was going to be the servant of the, of the other nation. And all he had was a slingshot and his rock. And all he had was a sling and a rock and a staff. Refused to wear the armor. But he said, and this is what he told Saul. He has spoken against God. God will deliver him into my hands. And the confidence that David had was enough to convince the king to let a young teenager with no armor, no experience, go fight a man, man of war and a giant. Saul should have had, he might have had some kind of Saul had some kind of faith, you know, even though he had been moving away from God at this point. He had some yeah, kind of faith. Obviously, he had some faith. David said or did something that touched his heart, or God touched his heart through those words. But here's the same thing with Asa. <laughs> We're going to go out, and God, they're coming out against you, not just us. Now, he could have said they're coming out against us, but his statement was, God, they're coming to attack you. We are your people. They are attacking you, not, not us. And I love what he's saying. His whole prayer is just a prayer of great faith and understanding of who God is. God, we're your people. This mighty army, huge army, lots more than we can handle, are out there covering the entire plain. But you can deliver because they're coming to attack you, not, not just us. Verse 12 says, So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. So a million-man army, 300, uh, uh, 3, 300 chariots, God smites. And it's very interesting when you look at these various battles that God did. During the battles that Joshua fought, it said there was one battle where the hornets chased the enemy away. <laughs> you know, uh, another battle where hailstones fall down and kill more people than the, than the army does. Uh, many times God would turn the enemy fighting each other. On at least one occasion, an angel comes and kills the entire army. You know, what can God do when we trust him? We get ourselves prepared for battle, and then watch what God does. 
There are times when we're prepared, we're ready to fight, and God says, no, just sit back and I've got this one. There's going to be times when we go out and actually have to fight the battle in his strength. But there's going to be those times when he turns the battle around and it says they came in and the Ethiopians fled. And there's nothing worse than to be a fleeing army with your back to the enemy, not ready to battle. More people die during the fleeing part than they do in the battle itself. And here's what it says in verse 13. And Asa and the people that were with him pursued them to Gera, and the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover themselves, and they, for they were destroyed before the Lord and before his host, and they carried away much spoil. And they smote all the cities around Gera, and the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they spoiled all those cities, and there was exceeding much spoil in them. And they smote also the tents of the cattle and carried away sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem. They were running for their lives. Asa and his 580 people chased after them and kept chasing after them. And when they got to the towns that these guys were hoping to get to, they destroyed those towns because God was on their side. And it said they took much, very, not just much, but very much spoil. And, you know, I've never really understood, but in those days, people went in with all their fine jewelry and everything and their gold and silver and, and all of that to go into battle, trying to be impressive. Look how wealthy I am. I don't know, what the, I don't know why they did it. But they went in trying to look, look rich. Look, so when you died, you would strip the body of all this wealth. They, yeah, I don't see the sense in it. it you know, let's weigh myself down with lots of gold jewelry so that I can't fight. Uh, but I'll look impressive. Uh, I'll look really scary, I guess. I don't know what the purpose was. But they were able to, out of all these Ethiopians, they killed so many of them, they've got a great bounty of very much spoiled, it said. And they conquered the cities around Gera, which are down around Egypt. They conquered all those cities and, moved, and, and took the, the bounty from those cities. Then, for good measure, they found where the flocks were and conquered the flocks and, and took all the sheep and the camels that these people had in that portion of the land. It was a great victory. The people were able to become very wealthy. And this is one of the things about these battles. Part of your pay, a big part of your pay when you went to battle in those days was to take all the rewards from the, from the dead, en dead enemies and the cities that you conquered. So you'd get slaves, you'd get gold, you'd get weapons, you'd get all kinds of things that were able to be sold and, and everything. Because you only got paid a little bit by the king to go out to battle, but your real wealth was by being victorious and being a conqueror. And so here, they get all the wealth carried, carried into battle. They get all the food carried into battle. They get all the, the spears and the swords and everything that the Ethiopians were carrying. And then they get to those cities, and they get all the wealth of those cities to take into their possession. And that would be split amongst the entire army. And these people would get, if you were successful, if you won, you got a nice payment out of this from the spoils of war. And we read in several times... This one doesn't tell us how long it took to get these spoils of war, but we're going to read another king takes them three days to harvest all the spoils of war. And they didn't even have to fight. God killed the enemy. And it took them three days to go amongst all the dead and gather up all the, all the, all the spoil. That's a lot of reward, especially when you didn't have to fight. He just went out there and go, oh, there's dead enemy. Okay, let's go get the stuff. That is the kind of stuff God would do for us. And then think about this. When God gives us victories, there's a spoil that goes along with the victory. There's a spoil that God will give us. And maybe not physical wealth or anything, but there's a spoil. There's a peace. There's a joy. There's contentment. There's peace that goes along with it. And God gives us victory. If you've ever come off the mountaintop experience with God, you go out and you go to something really great 
and you just feel on top of the world because there's been victory during that period of time. And now the sad thing is you come back down off the mountain and oftentimes forget the mountaintop experience, but it, it feels good during the time that you're victorious on that. It's good to see a revival and live in the glow of that revival. It's great to come from a great meeting with God and his people and feel the spirit descending upon us and knowing that we have victory for a short period of time. If we could just stay in that mountaintop experience and then not, and we'd be okay. But you know, unfortunately, people are so short-sighted. God, what have you done for me lately? God, I know you took care of me last year. I know you took care of me last week. I know you took care of me, whatever. But what have you done for me today? We have to avoid that kind of a comment and that kind of thinking at all cost. Because the suddenlies are on their way. (laughs) Suddenly things are going to change. And we want to be aware that we need to be prepared for the sudden changes that God lets come our way. Because he's going to let things happen. He's going to give Satan more chain than we want him to have. He's going to give him more permission to do things to us. And we need to be ready for it, prepared in our heart, because suddenly everything changes. Suddenly revival comes. Suddenly the attack comes. And again, just read our Bible and see, read your Bible and see how often things just suddenly change. And all the things just, the the disciples sitting in the upper room and suddenly the Holy Spirit descends upon them and Pentecost happens. They knew it was coming. They didn't know when. And then all of a sudden, they are anointed by God and become bold and courageous. And we watch how their lives are changed. And then we watch how suddenly everything gets coming back at them on an attack. We need to be ready for all of those things to happen and be on our guard and be prepared. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to prepare during the quiet times to follow you. Help us to prepare for those sudden changes, both good and bad, that you bring our way. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin comes short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.